Membership shouldn't necessarily be a simple equation between rounds of golf. The more it stacks up that membership is the best value for money, that's where you want to keep that proposition. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Bunker Podcast in association with Callaway. Michael McEwen here. Thank you very much, as always, for tuning in. This, as I said right there, it's a special episode. This isn't your typical Bunker Podcast. So don't be expecting things like the Podder of Merit. Don't be expecting Honesty Box. Don't be, well, you should probably expect some forthright opinions from Bryce because some things never change. Oh, He's thanks. sitting right next to me. This is unusual to have you sitting next to me. Bryce Richard, Bunker Editor. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? Good, good. Can't complain at all. And we're not even going to indulge in the, what did you get up to at the weekend? Because that's not relevant today. This is a very different type of Bunker podcast. For once, we're not talking about tour players. We're not talking about things that maybe happened last night. Instead, we're talking about something that affects all of us. If you're listening to this, this will 100% affect you because we're talking about the grassroots of the game. Proper grassroots domestic golf. You're going to hear from some special guests that we've got in the studio with us today as well. That's another point of difference. How nice is it to have guests? We've been doing this podcast <laughs> two years and it's always been just me and you and now we have company. I will bring them in very soon. But in the meantime, what are we doing? Why are we here? This is, as I said, to talk about the grassroots of golf, membership, participation, the things that affect golfers. You're going to hear a lot of Scottish voices over the next wee while or so. And yes, some of the examples that we're going to cite are very Scottish specific. What can I say? We're from the home of golf. We're lucky. We're blessed in that sense. But what we're talking about is going to be relevant to people everywhere. So if you're tuning in in New Zealand, you're going to relate to a lot of what we're going to talk about. The United States, this, a lot of this is going to be familiar to you. Even our listeners in Ghana, where we remain the number one golf podcast, this is going to be relevant to you. So there is a lot to talk about, lots of ground that we want to cover but I guess, Bryce, we're going to split this into maybe three sections because the landscape has changed. The ground has shifted under the feet of golfers over the last few years. So what do I mean by that? Pre-pandemic, during pandemic and post-pandemic, golf has come a long way and the sport as we know it looks rather different now than it did five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the key thing is that we're for the first time in a long time, we're all talking about one thing in the industry, which is growth. And the reason I wanted to do this podcast or we wanted to do this podcast is because I think it all started with, uh, I attended the British Golf Industry Association meeting on Zoom, which I'd never done before. And that whole chat was about protection of the growth of the game. So when was that? This was maybe two months ago. And I, I Bunkered only joined the BGIA last year, I think, so it was completely new to me. But they talked about the protection of the growth of the game. Now, in the British Golf Industry Association, there's, there's people from all parts of the industry, equipment brands, uh, golf courses, associations, media, and they're all there for the one common goal, which is to see the game grow. And there was very interesting conversations about the protection of the growth of the game, which I thought was quite interesting. So why are we talking about that? But I think if you look back at, say, this is the key to what we're going to talk about today. If you look back at, say, five, six years ago in the Scottish industry, memberships were down and memberships kept falling. 
And we were as guilty as anyone when we reported that by <laughs> saying that, oh, that's people leaving the game. If you go back in the Bunker website and you look up things, stories about memberships down when the figures come out and, you know, 26,000 golfers, whatever the number is, excuse me, I may have got that wrong, but that's what we're going to go with, have left the game. That was actually not true. They just stopped being a member of a golf club. What the pandemic did was highlight that loads of people are still interested in golf. And we can go through some numbers later on, which are quite staggering, which show that golf is possibly in the best place it's ever been right now. The rumours of its death have been greatly exaggerated, yeah. with apologies to whoever was there. So, said that. I don't know who said that, but what do we do right now? And I think that meeting was really key. And Eddie Reid, who's head of TGI, he made, I thought he made some really, really good points in that meeting where he said, it's not about now. Yeah, now's great. Everything we're doing now is is fantastic. And the game's got growth. You know, the, some of the brands are making great amounts of money. Like Callaway's announced its net sales this year of 3.1 million. What? Prof, profits of 58 million. So who is buying that? That's golfers around the world. People are playing more golf. What do we do now to protect that? Because let's be honest, if we're being honest about where we are in the industry, we're in our, in my career anyway, in the last 20, 25 years, we're in a second boom. The Tiger boom started after the 97 Masters. The Tiger boom started and we get to 99, 2000 and bang, everyone starts building golf courses and we start selling gear and, and there's just more oomph to golf. But then a downturn happened and then we had to react to that. And it was a, panda- a pandemic that helped us get to where we are now. As much as a pandemic can be helpful. Yeah. To, but that's what's, that is what's happened. You know, you're right. After the boom, typically you've got the bust. Uh-huh. We're in the good phase just now yes. because of the pandemic. And I but think we know what, what's coming think, unless we're careful. I think everyone's industry has changed. You know, everyone's viewing things differently. Look at, like, like streaming has changed the music industry. Streaming, is, streaming has changed how we watch TV. Like, there was another streaming service launched at the weekend, Paramount Plus on your Skybox. You'll see it advertising everywhere. That's another thing that's changed. So, if you don't adapt to the environment that you're in, you will struggle. And I think we've seen a few things that have happened in our industry close to home that we think we want to talk about today, which some people see as a positive, some might see it as as not a positive, but I think we should discuss it. Absolutely. Golf is changing. We think it's changing for the better. It's in a good place, but you're quite right when you say that, you know, we're in the midst of this boom just now. Golf clubs are maybe listening to this and thinking, why are they talking about this? Where was this three, four years ago when we needed the help? It's like, well, wait a minute. You may need this again because as sure as night follows day and day follows night, People who have joined golf clubs in the last couple of years, they're going to have some decisions to make in the next year, two years, maybe even the next few months away the cost of living crisis is going. Will a golf club membership still be the thing that they want come Christmas? And we want them to stay. They possibly want to stay. But it's up to golf as an industry to not rest on its laurels. Instead, capitalise on Oh, momentum. Paul McGinley's favourite word. Yeah, We've got momentum work, in the work out now. what's best for the future. I think that's what we're talking about. Exactly. And look, we can't do that without speaking to the people who are making that change happen, who are administering the change, who are pushing through the change. So that's why I'm delighted that we do have a couple of guests with us, as I mentioned, 
First of all, we have Karen Sharp, Chief Operating Officer of Scottish Golf. Hello, Karen. Hi, Michael. Thank you for your time. And also from Scottish Golf, the Chief Commercial Officer, Ian Forsyth. Hello there, Ian. Morning, Michael. Great to have you both with us in the office. Great to actually be speaking face-to-face, as opposed to, like Bryce mentioned, Zoom and so on. Is Zoom dead? I don't know. We'll soon find out, I guess. I, I hope it is. <laughs> had my fill <laughs> of Zoom meetings. So maybe Zoom should have had one of these conversations yeah, yeah. a year or two ago, knowing what was coming. But that's why we're delighted that we have you guys face-to-face so we can have this chat about the state of the game. Karen, I'm, I'm going to come to you first because you had somewhat of a baptism of fire, I think it's fair to say. You know, you, you took the, you've been working with Scottish golf in uh, a capacity for quite some time. But the pandemic changed everything, not just for golf clubs, but for you as well. We know the the former chief exec of Scottish Golf stood down a month into the pandemic, moved on to the pastures new. At the time that clubs all around the country are crying out saying, oh, wait a minute, we need help, we need help. How can you help us? You had to step in and effectively steady the ship. Give us an idea, a perspective of what that time was like and the challenges you faced. It was unprecedented for sure, and it was the same across every industry, not just golf. Uh, We all faced different challenges and had to deal with them pretty quickly and head on. I guess the early phase for us was two-pronged, with golf courses, um, you know, having to close late March, and that in itself bringing a lot of feedback from, you know, individual golfers as well as the golf clubs, um, whether it being an outdoor sport. Lots of acreage, um, you know, the recommended daily exercise piece and, and I guess a, a bit of a lack of understanding as to, to why the golf courses themselves couldn't open. Um, so that was definitely a, a big communication focus point for us, as well as working alongside colleagues in the government, um, in Active Scotland, in public health to try and understand where they're concerns um, and sort of direction of travel we're potentially heading and try and build a plan for the reopening of the game. So trying to think, you know, at that moment in time, we hoped a couple of weeks down the line. As it turned out, it was slightly longer than that. It was it was closer to 10 weeks, which, you know, again, looking back, felt like a lifetime. It was quite, quite a long time for a lot of frustrated golfers. But I guess the you know the, the whole health piece, the, the the sort of wider impact on the national health and the infrastructure, you know, were, were critical to the decisions that were being made within government, and uh, we we had to just do our best um, for the game to try and demonstrate that golf was a safe sport that could be played, and we managed to um, open again at the end of May. Unfortunately, in Scotland, stayed open, unlike uh, a number of other counterparts. Uh, That's right. We got probably luckier than than others, but I don't know how lucky you can be when you know we're talking about a pandemic and actually having to close. You used the right word. It was unprecedented. I take it. I, I assume the phone didn't stop ringing for the first few weeks from anxious golf club secretaries and managers and even golfers themselves. Yeah, so that that was a challenge in itself because, as with everybody else in the country, um, you know, the Scottish golf team had to work from home. So the of telephone, course. the telephone piece um, was something that we had to switch over, change our approach, 
open up different um, email channels such that queries could be directed appropriately. Again, like lots of other businesses, uh, we had to think about the opportunity to use the furlough scheme as a membership organisation and uh, ensuring that we were doing the best um, with the the income uh, in the current year. You know, we chose to furlough the best part of 50% of the staff team. So, you know, that in itself meant asking a number of the team who remained in post to perhaps be doing something different to their normal job. Huge learning curve for everybody. There was that whole how we interacted as a team when we were used to being face-to-face in the same office. You had to adapt to using Zoom or Teams, which... Uh, and then I suppose your your normal role stops, doesn't it? You, any plans that you had in place? You know, we're talking blue sky thinking plans that you would have in place but I was assume would have just stopped for the time being. Absolutely, stopped overnight and some difficult decisions. Uh, you know, we were early uh, coming out with some decisions. We cancelled the full calendar of events for 2020. All of our performance activity, we did that early. We took a bit of flack at the time. You know, it, it was absolutely a gut feel from us in terms of being able to redivert our focus, um, our resource and, uh, you know, prioritise uh, the club support rather than the individual golfer support for that period of time. And I guess it worked out given the length of time that things were still challenging from both a travel perspective um, and golf courses being closed. Of course. And Ian, I, I guess the, the clue's really in the title, isn't it? Commercial. I mean... <laughs> I know that Chief Operating Officer and having to deal with the ship sinking around about you must be challenging, but we all saw the direct financial hits that everyone, whether it was individual or companies, took during that time. Give me an idea as to how you and your role had to adapt to support clubs and the challenges that you face from a commercial point of view. Yeah, I think commercially, as Karen stated, it was we were early with our decisions. So whilst we could have been criticised for, for example, cancelling the event season, by cancelling a season, then that puts some financial certainty into some areas. And uh, within six weeks, you know, we made £575,000 rebate to the golf clubs. So, you know, commercially putting money straight back in their pockets. I think that it was such an unknown territory for everybody that it doesn't matter whether you were running the government or running your own business, no one knew what was happening. And that was actually the biggest challenge, I think. There was a lot of people applying a lot of common sense. The man in the street was applying a lot of common (laughs) sense that I just saw a guy walking a dog up the first, so what's the difference between that and me carrying a set of clubs? So I get the argument. It was an obvious argument, but, you know, and Karen and I sat there in the office with literally a map of a golf course, and if they teed off every 10 minutes in twos, how many people would be in 150 acres with X amount of hours? Yeah, yeah. And that's what went to the government. That level of detail. Literally, yeah. that is what we put to the government. And that was where it wasn't that they didn't see common sense, but there was actually a plan as to there is kind of nothing to see here. If this is controlled properly and if the clubs you know, were responsible, which they were, this will work. Ironically, from a digital slash commercial sense, if I can put it that way, digital helped in the pandemic, you know, so with regards to tea times, having tea sheets, everything being done remotely, right down to as we moved forward and people being able to submit their scores digitally, that all made a difference. So what actually happened, the strange thing was that technology for the golfers, wherever they got their technology from, 
it was all expedited in quite a short period of time. Many people wouldn't have, uh, for example, done you know digital scorecards. Maybe even till now. Yeah, if, if there wasn't a pandemic, you would have a soft launch on that, wouldn't you? It suddenly it was Absolutely. you do this or you're not playing. Absolutely, and so that's where it got too quick. So the, a lot of a lot of things were positive. Absolutely. I mean, Bryce, you can speak maybe a little bit to what it was like to be a golf club yeah, member yeah. at that time because I know how much you love going up to. Um, I apologise to regular listeners, but up to the TPC, yeah, yeah, and all of a sudden that was taken away from you. It must have been quite frustrating was, at that time. It was a fight for tea times. That that was oh, when the it thing reopened, that, of course. Yeah, yeah. there was yeah. a fight for tea times when it when it reopened, and I think when you when you couldn't play, that was obviously disappointing. I think a lot understanding people knew what was going on. Yeah, there were lots that didn't, but. Yeah, there was the fight for tea times, and if you didn't get that spot, you were fuming, you know, because there were some places where there were so many members fighting for certain spots, and if suddenly every member's got all this spare time, then they can play. But I think that led to opportunities, but it also highlighted the fact that there were lots of people who wanted to play golf, but couldn't play golf because they weren't a member of a golf club. And I think, to me, that highlighted this conversation we've been having for years that we used to highlight this nomad 10 15 years ago in the magazine we used to write about it in like a negative way like oh, these these terrible golfers the nomads are not members of golf clubs this evil entity that exists and you think back then you think well that's quite strange that we did that because that's a golfer and i think the pandemic threw up that golfer and it was almost like how are we going to bring them in yeah they're always treated like a sort of second class of yeah. golfer you know, you're you play golf, but you're not a golfer if you're a nomad. Yeah. So you must have. Did you ever get the endless phone calls from people who weren't members to say, "Look, how can I play golf because I'm I'm not a member?" And you couldn't you couldn't go out with you. What was it? Your seven miles and all that stuff. And that just created this undercurrent of guys who weren't happy because they couldn't play. Because I think that's where the first influx of the membership started. That yeah. that lack of ability to get on a tee sheet. You know, there was probably very few courses in the country would have had a waiting list at that point. There's a lot more now. Uh, so that was a means to playing golf, being a member. We're very fortunate, I think, in Scotland compared to other areas of the world or, or even the country, whereby golf's not that expensive. Uh, or in, in certain areas, it doesn't need to be expensive. So that allowed those independent nomad golfers to get out and get a game. They probably were restricted from other sports that they might have been doing. So that definitely helped as well. And to your point, um, we had a situation, I think, with our guys where our T-sheets that we had on our system had been automated at midnight. So it was to when you could book the tea time. And of course, others, <laughs> so you know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they kick off, why does your T-sheet have to be midnight? Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll change it. <laughs> so because obviously six o'clock on a Friday seems to be the time that uh, most people can do that. But but. It was positive in, in, in a sense, but what's also interesting, and it just flushed out a bit quicker, a bit like the technology, is there are way more golfers than there are just golf club members. And I think there always have been. And to, to your point earlier, Bryce, I don't personally believe that playing ever dipped that much. Mm -hmm. I think how people played and how they consume it mm -hmm. has changed yes, and probably continues to change. Um, but the golf clubs are in a very fortunate position, I think, at the moment with regards to membership numbers and membership income. Karen, when the, the shackles were taken off, if you like, and we were allowed to get back out there and play again and interest started to ramp up, were you surprised at just how many people wanted to go and play golf, people who weren't existing golf club members? 
you know, there was a massive upturn. You know, people were flocking to golf courses trying to get around. Was that a surprise? I don't think it was a surprise. It was definitely the pent-up demand and the, you know, the level of uh, contact and communication we'd had over the period. You could tell that there was a lot of people really keen to get back out on the golf course. As Ian said, yes, the ability um, for a number of uh, clubs to pick up some additional uh, members, but there was still a lot of people who, you know, travelling round to consume their golf at a variety of courses, um, you know, with a group of friends remained, uh, you know, their preferred approach. They were the ones that maybe hadn't, you know, moved into club membership and, uh, you know, were very keen to see that opportunity exist for clubs to open up to visitors again. So we kind of had the two phases. Yes, the, the 29th of May, I think, was the date um, when, from a golf club member perspective, things probably got back to a little bit of normality. It was it was a while after that before the, um, the five-mile travel limit was removed and there could really be... I guess that freedom of movement for the the independent golfer and then, you know, being able to consume the game in the way that they wanted, which, you know, for a certain age demographic is very different to the traditional uh, membership model. It absolutely is. You mentioned rightly, Karen, the the ways that people are consuming golf is changing and the different opportunities that have been opened up. What I think has happened in the pandemic, to use your words, Ian, things have been expedited. And so the, the opportunities for you to communicate and actually speak to those independent golfers, nomads, whatever you want to call them, that's changed and you've been able to communicate directly and give them a brand new product as well, if you like, haven't you? Yeah. So, you know, again, product of uh, the pandemic and how we changed our internal approach, um, you know, look back two, three years before, we only ever talked directly to golfers. We changed that uh, in the height of the pandemic and started responding to the individual golfer. That was a big change for us internally. But then we also used our technology, um, our digital capability through the Scottish Golf app, where we now have, um, it's about 145,000 registered golfers, um, you know, using that on a regular basis. That gave us the, you know, the tools to, to speak directly to those golfers. And part and parcel of that um, was the introduction of um, a new feature for us um, in an open play membership. So tell me more about open play. What what is it? Because I'm I'm quite sure that a lot of people listening to this will have heard the term, but they're not entirely sure what it means or what it involves. So it's a monthly um, membership option for any golfer to join directly to Scottish Golf, have access to submitting cards for a handicap should they choose. Not everybody does. And it gives them the flexibility and freedom to be able to benchmark themselves against their peers, but still be able to um, you know, travel around independently, access their own preferred golf courses, paying their green fees um, and, and consuming their golf in the way that um, suits their lifestyle. So effectively, this might be a really reductive way of putting it, but you've turned Scottish golf into a golf club that people can join, get all the benefits of being a golf club member, but still have the flexibility and freedom to go and play where they like. Is, is that it in a nutshell? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> what is the what's the average age of someone who's a member of Open Play? Uh, the average age is forty. See, I've said this for years. I've said this thing about golf club membership. Always had this thing, you know. How do we? And I know Scottish golf have have been part of that as well, but not on or not on your um on your remit from years ago. That sort of under forty five. Can we get more under forty five year olds? Under guys in their twenties joining golf clubs and girls and so on. And I always thought that was kind of strange because that's not traditionally what happens. 
guys, you know, 35-year-old men or women tend not to be members of golf clubs. There's not so many of them in that respect. I've always said, if you went to 100 golf clubs on a Saturday afternoon and picked up 100 people in those clubs, a very small number of them would be under age of 40. But that doesn't mean that those people don't exist. They just happen to not be members of golf clubs. So I think open play targets an element of the industry that perhaps doesn't necessarily want to be tied into a golf club membership. Is that fair to say? Or is that too... Yeah, no, I I think that it's very much... It's like a pathway, if we we look at it that way. So if we we, we spoke earlier about non-members and the second-class citizen that you referred to, which I do think some people maybe viewed them as. and And when I say in that sense... They maybe didn't know etiquette. Uh, the perception was they wouldn't know etiquette. They uh-huh. wouldn't know what to wear. And they probably didn't play very well. We now know that's not true. Yeah. Okay. So the average handicap of the, of the independent golfer now is no different to the average handicap of a golf club. Is member. that right? Pretty much. Uh, and so in that sense, I think that if you're a beginner, a genuine beginner, a pathway might be through a driving range, through a place that you, you you don't feel intimidated. You go with a friend, you can have a laugh. You know, we've got Top Golf opening here in Glasgow uh, uh, next year. And so I think that, that there's that fun element, potentially. Or you might have a golfer who's been a golfer as a child and maybe hit that uni age or whatever or gone off to work somewhere and they've dropped their membership for, for, for pers- personal reasons, family reasons. So then when they come back on, this is an opportunity for them to come back on across the country. Generally speaking, at the moment, it's about 4% of people are moving from the open play membership into golf club membership. So it's, I think we're just capturing a wider audience into the game. So we know something about them, mm-hmm. you know, with regards to how often they want to play, how many scorecards they want to put in, what is their average handicap, etc. And there's also for the independent golfer, there's been a real stigma for years they go to a corporate golf day or they stand on the first tee, what's your handicap? Yeah. You're a bandit, yeah. guaranteed. So it takes that away. Yeah. So I see it as positive. Touchwood, we haven't seen a negative impact. There haven't been negative impacts in other countries that have done this. Yeah, so I have to say that that's, that's one of the things that some of the, and it's not from the press, it's not from us, it's from certain golf clubs. The world of Facebook have, have brought in some things about this will be a negative thing for Scottish golf clubs. Give us a flavour of what some of the clubs you've spoken to that have have given their reaction to that about open play and how they see it impacting them. I think that initially it, uh, the fear was driven by opinion. It was, it was, so nothing was driven by fact, fact or data. Yeah. The fact and data that we had gone with was data and facts that had come from other countries. And countries that had only seen that positive impact and the travel one way, as in it was going to membership. For example, New Zealand. Yeah, New Zealand, as you say, New Zealand had done it, Canada had done it. Um, at the same time as us, as you know, England have done it. And it's had a very positive impact because, as, as we said earlier, the numbers of people playing golf versus membership is still huge. Uh, and I think engaging with these people, we've also been, as governing bodies globally, we've been data poor when it comes to golfers. We've only spoke to members. And as we've said, that is not all of the golfers. So the more we, we bring that in, the more we actually understand the journey, more we understand what they want, you know, the, and also trying to get the, the gender split moving forward is quite key. So at the moment, for example, the gender split, is, it's lower on independent golfers than uh, for females than it is on golf club members. 
So, uh, you know, that's something that I, I think that we, we can all work on. And I think that, it, it, you know, the, the that down, you know, the, the, the waves, as you, as you mentioned earlier, that, that great golden sort of era that we're, we're back into, that's almost like been 10 years in the making <laughs> and the pandemic yeah, ended up making it. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, everybody is conscious and I don't think, you know, golf clubs are, they know how they got these new members. And so keeping those new members is is the challenge. Yeah, the retention. To, to, to go into that golden wave, let's look at some numbers because in the UK, golfers have played 18 or nine hole golf courses rose from 2.5 million in 2017 to 2.8 million in 2018. Now that's pre-pandemic. That's small growth. 3 million in 2019 before hitting 5.2 million in 2020. So that's significant. And then... The total number of golfers globally has increased from 61 million to 66.6 million. That's, that's unbelievable numbers. And then in 2021, European Golf Participation Report, report revealed that over 10.6 million golfers enjoy 18-hole golf in Europe, up from 7.9 million in 2016. So why not take advantage of that? And that's the whole thing about... When you were sitting down thinking about open play and you were discussing that... I, did you have discussions with other associations? Like, did you sit around a table with England Golf and say, well, let's work together? Or or was it a case of, well, we want to do what we want to do? Because when I was sitting on that BGIA uh, meeting, everyone was around the same table. They were all talking about what we can do together. But then you don't work with England Golf, so that's quite difficult to do that, is it? But did you share ideas when it came to theirs? A lot of open discussions, yeah. Yeah. We were all uh, in open discussions as well, as we mentioned, with other countries. And from the point of view that you want to make sure that you've not left a stone unturned, you're not going to catch a cold on something that you you weren't thinking about. And they were were just constant positive stories. And it was was always that gap between the membership and, as, as you mentioned, the number of golfers. And how do we engage with these mm-hmm. golfers? Uh, um, and where the journeys were just pro- possibly slightly different is, you know, we went earlier if, with, with our app. As Karen mentioned, prior to WHS, and it, it was weird because it was actually a little bit of a double hit when it comes That's to right. the independent golfer. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic and WHS, because that was when we started speaking direct to golfers. You know, uh, so the uh, all, all app feedback comes through us, any comments come through us, anything these fix comes through us. Um, so we got to engage with the golfer directly, you know, and in a short period of time, you know, you're looking at two million odd scores being submitted in Scotland for competition, but we're now at 400,000. So that's a kind of 25% on general play. And that curve is kind of going one way and going one way quite fast. So people, I think, like the idea that. I'll just submit a score because at the end of the day, if you submit a score every time you play, that's going to be an accurate handicap. And there's, I think the digital aspect that you related to earlier in the chat just made it so much easier. It took the faff out of it. Yeah. You, you, can, you can get on the first tee, hit the button, you hit the button and we put the score in at the end and it's done. Karen, as we've mentioned there, it's important for Scottish golf to represent all golf and golf clubs so for golf clubs that were maybe seeing open play as a threat to them it would have been a dereliction of duty for you and the rest of the team not to try and communicate with the independent golfers that that's and that that seems pretty obvious to me but i guess the question that will then come back from those who feel threatened by it and apologies this is the tricky one potentially but they're saying well you're making money off this how are you going to use that money where is it going to go and will it benefit us 
Absolutely. Um, as a member organisation, a not-for-profit, all of what we do um, is for, for reinvestment in the game in Scotland. So, uh, you know, we've got a number of strategic priorities. We are literally... In the last three months um, of the previous four-year plan, we've been out around the country, you know, over the last few months, gathering feedback, listening to um, the stakeholders, we're shaping the next four-year plan. But, you know, a lot of the, the direction will be around, uh, you know, continue, continuing to try and focus on uh, the women and girls game, junior participation a sort of seamless pathway um, for all ages and stages um, across the game and much more support for the volunteer workforce that is critical um, within the game. You know, undoubtedly the lifeblood um, within many, many clubs and those will be, um, you know, some of the biggest areas in which we're looking to support the individual golf clubs moving forward. As you said, you know, our, our role is absolutely um, about growing the game in Scotland, whether that be in traditional club membership or uh, more broadly. But also um, we've got a key role in terms of the integrity and upholding, um, you know, the, the sort of values uh, and, and the rules of the game. And I think some of the core um, terms and conditions that sit within our open play um, membership are probably um, a good bit stricter than would be uh, maybe in some of the individual golf clubs themselves. Um, You know, we've put a lot of protection in place that an individual can't join open play um, if they've not been or if they've been within a golf club membership in the last 12 months. So there's a cooling off period. There's a cooling off period. You know, there is the ability for a golf club to waive that if, you know, if they deem the individual to be, say, a a good lever, maybe somebody's moving to another part of the country and they accept that there's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, part and parcel of it as well um, is that we do some spot checking across uh, handicap allocations. And in fact, one of our team was out last week doing a playing assessment of an open play member who had submitted a number of cards, which, uh, you know, Flagged up some potential anomalies, uh, so we had one of the team out doing. Um, I'm loving that. An, an tell, tell me more about anomalies. Like that is some juicy stuff. He should have been in our national squad. <laughs> really, but really? he's not. But that's but that's what people want to hear. Yeah. Of course, it is. because and it's the a thing core about part of it, yeah, yeah, the thing about handicaps was if you go into the world of Facebook again, was this is going to hurt golf? There's the bandits, bandits, bandits. But then. Handicaps and open play are relatively similar. So as we look to the, the future, I guess, in I, I, get, I think it would be naive of us to expect that the levels that we've reached in the last couple of years in terms of membership and participation are going to be sustained Like right there. There'll be no change. There has to be, just by the nature of the universe, a little bit of a drop-off. How do we mitigate that? What can clubs do? What should clubs be doing just now? to make sure that that is as low a number as it can as it should potentially be. I think that historically there's been a a mathematical exercise that a lot of people have done in their head with regards to how some might value membership. Okay? So and we're in a situation now where tea times are prime. Uh, people have made a decision to join a golf club or not join a golf club. Now if golf club screen fees are quite healthy if that was to change and if that was to go back in the gutter, then you're going to start giving people an easier 
decision to make. What do you mean? What do you mean green, key, green fees are healthy? And go back to gutter. No, what, what I mean by that? No, what I mean by that is that you know the, the, everyone talked regularly about the race to the bottom when it came to green fees. Uh, somebody being able to pay around a goal for ten pound. You know, I only play twenty times a year, so can I get value out of membership? And and you made a point earlier with regards to. Membership shouldn't necessarily be an, a simple equation between rounds of golf. You know, being a member of a club, the feeling of belonging, etc., is is a different proposition. But some people do that exercise, and so I think that for me, I, the clubs are in a good position. They should sit, they need to stay strong because what we have, whether you're a member, if we took all golfers and forget whether you're a member or not a member, you're going to spend X amount of money potentially on your game. And how you're going to consume that game. So you're going to want the best value for money back. And, and I think that as long as it, the more it stacks up, that membership is the best value for money, that's where you want to keep that proposition. Karen, there's other things that Scottish Golf are doing as well to try and make golf itself, I mean, not necessarily membership, but golf itself look like an appealing prospect. Things like the Ping series, for example. Tell us a bit more about that and why people should be paying attention and getting involved if they can. Yeah, so the Ping Open series uh, is new for this year. It, it complements our portfolio um, nicely. You know, we've got the range of uh, national events, um, which are more difficult to, to get entry to. You have to have uh, a certain handicap level to, to beat the ballot on uh, a lot of those numbers. But these ones are very much aimed at your, your average golfer, um, whether that's a club member or an open play um, member. We have secured some great venues across the country. It's also an opportunity to, uh, I guess, give back to some of those clubs who have hosted uh, national championships for us in the past which can invariably mean they're giving up um, you know, their venue for four, five, six, seven days or more so it's a way of contributing something back to the golf clubs as well as uh, you know, providing that I guess elevated experience um, you know we have our full um, national event set up there with the big scoreboards you know we have all the um the tee boardings etc so for a lot of golfers it provides them with that really nice um and probably unique experience to experience, feel like we've yeah. been at a, a, a professional event mm-hmm. yeah it's funny you're actually in the company of the 2020 2019 balfron men's handicap that's, that's actually correct, Canon. Is that the right? <laughs> Congratulations, right something, something like that. So that sounds like the sort of thing that you should yeah, be involved yeah, yeah. in. But <laughs> to be honest, just engrave the name on the trophy now. Let's save everyone the hassle. I guess. Look, let's look at it in the bigger picture. Scottish golf, and I don't really want to go too near negatives, but I can't ignore them equally. You look back pre-pandemic. There was some criticism about Scottish golf, the direction it was going things that happened under previous regimes, proposals tabled under previous regimes. And from the outside looking in, it appeared as though there was a little bit of friction between some clubs, some officials in the game, and you guys, the the governing body. If anything, it feels like that relationship is now stronger than ever. Do you feel that you're in a better position now, that you've got a better relationship with your clubs, with your association, with your members? Absolutely, without a doubt. And I think one of the key... uh, changes for us as an organisation, you know, through the pandemic was 
the partnership approach that had to come into play, um, you know, working very closely with the other home nations, the RNA, um, you know, bigger in terms of, you know, setting up a lot of the, um, the, the rules and expectations around the game. And that then naturally extended into um, you know, our relationship and conversations, which, you know, had always been strong with Sports Scotland, with Scottish Government. But I think it, it really highlighted, um, you know, through that first three, four months or so that, a partnership approach, um, a sort of open and engaging um, approach and, and using the much wider skill set that is available across the whole industry, um, recognising that we don't have to do absolutely everything um, ourselves and, and really kind of changing that approach has been has been key for us. It's funny, you know, as I look at the clock now, we've been speaking for 45 minutes and the one thing that hasn't come up is elite golfers. And again, that was something that was thrown at you, Ian, that, Scottish golf only exists for the, you know, the the players that they want to turn into pros, and they're only there to try and create the next Robert McIntyre, Colin Montgomery. It's strange to have spoken to people at Scottish golf for this long and not gone anywhere near that discussion. I, I think that one of the biggest things, well, there's three things, and the fact that these three three things would happen in such a short period of time. There's the pandemic, which we spoke about, and let's face it, nobody likes change. That's it. Okay, yeah. I think that that's a real bottom line. No one likes change. WHS, massive game changer. Um, there are some people who believe that WHS is Scottish golf, but it's not. We did implement it, though, in Scotland. I think that's just because it sounds like WHS. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must be something like that. But, but, uh, but, but we did roll it out. With, uh, um, so there's that. And then the technical changes that we made and, you know, going from zero to having 150,000 golfers using the app doesn't happen without a bit of pain. It's, it's just life. And so when people get to the other side of that pain barrier, they start to see the better side of it, then things sort of smooth out a bit. So the journey has been worth it. There has been an element of pain along the way, for sure. But the, you know, the golf club's in a good position. The golfers are happy. I'd like to think the pandemic's gone. Oh, please. <laughs> and the WHS is in a, in a good position as well. So in, in that sense, it's just, there's it been a lot for people to cope with. Uh, and, and I have to say that, you know, during the early stages right through the pandemic the golf clubs have been unbelievable what they've had to do and how you know it's one thing that we have to change and move with it but they have to change and that that could be a golf club with only volunteers just but having to comply with legislation when you're run by volunteers and potentially an older age group of volunteers when everything's being done online is a challenge and and so um hats off to them basically but with all of that we have had some great performances from some of the top amateurs over the last couple of years we have. on the Louise international Duncan stage. springs immediately to mind. Hannah Darling as well, playing Augusta in the Augusta National Women's Amateur. We've, we still, it feels to me like we continue to punch above our weight a little bit relative to the resources and the sheer volume of players in other countries. We do rather well, I think. Yeah, I think so. And there's some some great younger talent uh, coming through as well. Uh, you know, Grace Crawford and Connor Graham, uh, both 15-year-olds who have, have done really well over the last uh, 18 months or so. It's funny you mentioned Connor. We played him last year, or a couple of guys in our team played him last year. Saw up close just how good a player he is. So I suggest you go and check out on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash bunkered, and look for the video we did with Connor. He is a a frightening talent, but indicative of the the level of young players that we've got. Bryce, just before we finish up, as a golf club member, do you feel you're getting more value for money now than you were prior to the pandemic? Do you feel that you've got a better relationship even with your club? 
How has it changed for you? Well, I suppose you say the word relationship there is quite key. So listen to Ian there before we started talking about elite. But I think Ian made some points there. But I think the big thing that I see that's a positive out of the pandemic is that people are talking to each other more. We have a lot more transparency in our industry than we had before. I think previous regimes at Scottish Golf, and I've been as critical as than, than most people, sometimes correctly, sometimes wrongly, um, that it seemed like it was hidden under the under the, the desks of the bosses that we weren't talking about things. But now we all were open. And I think golf clubs are asking you, I, I know that golf clubs have asked you questions and had honest answers, whether they like it or not. And I think that's quite refreshing. I think the pandemic has made people aware of the industry as a whole, not just in their own little pocket where they think they're going to exist themselves. And I think that's a positive. And I've... Being a member for me has always been the same. It, it didn't really change through the pandemic. It just got me allowed, allowed me to play more golf. <laughs> but that's that's a how can that possibly be a negative? But I I see golf club membership for me is the best way forward because that suits me. That's just the way it is. I I like the fact that I can just rock up. Don't have to worry about a credit card. I just book my tea time and on a go. I think that's important. I think everyone, as long as we get everyone in the industry playing the game they want to then that's a positive. And I think what the pandemic did and what you guys did with open play is it, it allows people to have that opportunity. If you don't have the opportunity in the game, you can't go anywhere. So I think that's a positive move forward. Yeah. I think if there's one if there's one negative, I'm not saying we're going to finish on a negative, but you mentioned like the trying to get the growth of the ladies game. That's that's a tricky thing for everybody. It's not just a Scottish golf problem. That's an everyone's problem. And I, 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 the one thing about that is that I don't think anyone really has an answer. However, what we're doing now, I think you might see the results of that, like in, incremental gains, as people would say, in say four or five years, I might see some small growth. And small growth is good growth. I think with the ladies game continues to be a tricky thing for people to get their teeth into and how to get more access to kids. And that's a tricky one. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, exactly how, Karen, do you go about achieving that objective of getting more women and girls playing the game? I guess there's a number of industry initiatives uh, which we collaborate with others on, particularly um, the, the Women in Golf Charter, where um, we've currently got about 250 golf clubs uh, in Scotland uh, who have signed up and committed to the charter, many of whom um, you know, have pledged to, I guess, pull together their own action plans um, and really focus on some of the activities that can make the game more inclusive for female golfers, um, you know, in their clubs, whether that's through, you know, all, all of their competitions being open to all genders as opposed to set, set individually um, across um, their, their individual member ca- categories. If it can be things like their, their course rating and ensuring that, um, you know, the tees are all rated for individual genders. But I think getting the individuals into the game, the, the whole community focus for, for many will work well depending on location. And I think from a from a female perspective, all of the evidence and all of the research suggests that trying to attract females in a group is the most successful approach. Um, so a number of our initiatives, such as um, you know, getting to golf and our girls' golf hubs, um, are starting to prove you know popular again uh, amongst that group of clubs who have made the commitment. And I, I think moving forward, unashamedly, we'll start to reward and recognise those clubs that are being able to evidence um, you know some of that shift in their, their membership demographic. 
if people are interested in finding out more about open play, where do they go, Karen? How can they, they get access to it? So on our website, www.scottishgolf.org, on the homepage, there is a, a, a nice big uh, banner uh, that will take them direct to open play information or they can download the Scottish Golf app. Superb plug. And you know what I love there? The fact that it's right in your face when you go on the website. How many times have I said, Bryce, in years gone by, you would go into a golf club's website, you'd want to find out how much it's going to cost and it takes you about seven or eight clicks to get anywhere near the price. But you can find out who the pro is. Right at the very start. So <laughs> it's it's that sort of gym membership model, isn't it? You go into a gym website, bang, it's going to make cost it easy. This much. So yeah, yeah, keeping it simple. But look, thank you so much to you both, Karen and Ian, for coming in. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. it's been a tough couple of years as well. But it sounds like things are all moving in, in the right direction again. So long may that continue. And Bryce, as ever, thank you for your time too. Thanks for having me. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to Callaway for their continued support of this podcast. We'll be back with our regular podcast very soon, where I will no doubt be taking the points off Bryce and Podder of Merit. As I said at the outset, some things just don't change. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.